Truth Tastes Funny is made possible in part by support from my other podcast, Yes Brand. And um, Yes Brand is a business-oriented podcast. I'm boldly taking brands where they desperately want to go. We have fun. We experiment with campaign ideas. We learn what works for them and what doesn't. And the reason I see the two podcasts as kind of sister podcasts, complimentary podcasts, is because Yes Brand is based on the yes and rule of improvisational comedy. Your scene partner makes an offer, a suggestion to you, and you accept it and build on it. That's always been my approach with clients. I listen to them. I hear their ideas. I hear their pain and their happiness and their joy and their passion, and I add to that. I build onto that with a story that I tell. And I feel that the Yes Brand method is really uh, ultimately going to be bigger than just about business. Because if we could learn to do that in our lives, just talk to people, just listen to people, how much more could we accomplish together? It's pretty simple, but you can find out more at yesbrandmethod.com. The funny thing about conscious conversation is that if both people are awake, the conversation becomes more productive. And isn't that fitting when I just talked about Yes Brand? And I hadn't even, I haven't even planned that. That was an unconscious conversation about conscious conversations. And this is my conversation with Jem Fuller. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repham. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guest today is Jem Fuller. Jem is a leadership coach, but he began as a barefoot backpacker and kind of hiked his way through the corporate world. And a lot of his clients are still in the corporate world, but he himself is not. Welcome to the show, Jem. Hirsch, thank you so much for having me on your show. So why don't you start it wherever you feel is a really great place for us to, to pick it up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's let's start with this current moment. You know, I've ended up. When I say ended up, there's no end, right? We, <laughs> this life thing just keeps on rolling <laughs> by. <laughs> but here I am now, as a father and partner, and between my partner and I, we have four teenagers from eighteen down to thirteen, and uh, you know, we live in a little surf town on the coast, uh, which is wonderful, a really wonderful place to live. So feeling very lucky and. And have got to a point now where I can feed my kids doing something I love doing. So that's 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 really lovely place to be. And it has been a super colourful journey to kind of land in the middle here. And I've been out to the extremes. You know, when I was a younger adult, I was very anti-establishment. So I went through my punk period of of rebelling against the system and you know um, everything that that entailed. <laughs> In living in squats in you know, yeah. abandoned buildings in London and, you know, facial piercings and stuff back in the 90s when no one was doing it. And I'm reasonably covered in tattoos. 
so that was those days and and that was you know that was me exploring as to you know trying to find a sense of identity and how do i fit if i don't want to be part of the mainstream what does that look like you know and to a certain degree taking it all so seriously <laughs> you know and <laughs> as we do you know and then and then coming through that when i when i had kids i fell in love in my late 20s and then kept traveling around the world so i've i've spent a lot of time traveling to foreign countries and then when kids came on the scene it was like wow i'm a dad i've got to find a way to feed these little people you know and i'd never had a career before so i got a job with an international travel company because i'd been traveling for a long time then was the chapter of the suit and tie and the corporate leadership and climbing the corporate ladder and you know getting sucked into that game of of the pressure to drive net profit you know, month on month, quarter on mm -hmm. quarter, year on year. If you're not growing that net profit, you're irrelevant. And all of the pressures, all of the the ramifications of those pressures, you know, I was drinking way too much booze. I wasn't being the person I wanted to be. I was not aligned with my values. I was on the outside. You know, if Instagram was a thing back then, which it wasn't, but if Instagram was a thing, my life was an Instagram feed. You know, it was like, oh, I've got the perfect job and beautiful wife and children and a, a home that we'd built and everything. So from the outside, it looked wonderful. But I was deeply, deeply unhappy. Um, and I'm glad I'm not in that chapter anymore because it, was, it wasn't very pleasant. And again, you know, getting sucked into this whole taking everything so seriously. But then had my, my beautiful midlife crisis slash awakening and uh, remembered to, to lighten up and come back to come back to myself again and repair the relationship with myself essentially. But I had to lose everything, lost my career, lost my house, lost my marriage, lost everything, except my two boys. I've got two boys and I had them week on week off, I still do. And they were my, they were my leverage, they were my light. You know, they were the, 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 yeah. the cat catalyst for me to really go, hey, Jem, come on, man sort yourself out. <laughs> so I did. And now, you know, yeah, I began did the you, journey of that. when you were in the corporate world, did you find that, uh, that it, your life, your life grew in a way to demand that you stay in it? In other words, did, did the money or the, and the success <laughs> kind of dictate that leaving would be dangerous, you know, for Completely. you? Completely. Risky. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's so well put and and so true because the more money you earn, you know, the bigger the house is that you build, which means the more money you've borrowed from a bank to build that house metaphorically and, and literally. And so, yeah, you get caught in this. In this you, I, I got myself into a situation where I couldn't leave because if I left, how was I ever going to earn that much money on my own was the thinking. You know, so yeah, you feel stuck, 100% stuck. And it wasn't until I got kicked out, you know, I got turfed unceremoniously kicked out of the, you know, I lost my job. But at that time, I, I didn't go back and get another corporate leadership role. Despite my family and my friends saying, Jem, you know, you owe the banks a lot of money. You've built a big house and you need to go and get a corporate job. And, and I said, no, this is, no, I've got to reset you know, and I had already decided that I wanted to start yeah. my own coaching practice one day, but I just thought, no, now's the time. I, I, I had a small handshake from the job, you know, a small bit of money. And I took that money and went and studied human behavioral profiling and neuro-linguistic programming and coaching and the things I was fascinated in. So I, I took that money and spent it on my own development 
and getting some qualifications in that space. And then I started my own business and it was sink or swim. I was in the deep end. I owed a lot of money, but I had to lose my house. You know, that's how committed I was to it. So sold the house. I had a bunch of debt. I had no belongings. I gave everything to my ex-wife. I said, I don't want to fight over anything. You just have it all. And so when me and my kids moved into our first rental property and I was in my early forties, um, we didn't have a fork or a spoon. We didn't have beds. We didn't have <laughs> crockery or cutlery. We had nothing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, geez, I'm really starting all over again. You know, how, yeah. how old were the boys? So the boys were eight and six years old at the time. Mm -hmm. At the time. And, and imagine, how was you know, that uh, transition? It was tough for them. It was really tough for them. In fact, traumatic, especially for the younger one too. Um, you know, the last thing in the world they wanted was for their mum and dad to separate. You know, that was probably, I think if I look back over my, you know, reasonably colorful life, that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was tell my children that their mum and I were separating. Yeah, that was, that was super tough. Yeah. And then, you know, I fell in love with my partner now and, and we are lucky to have a very conscious, beautiful relationship, which I'm eternally grateful for. However, when we were falling in love, it was super tough for the boys again, you know, especially the younger one. He was, you know, it was just harder for him. So we went through the tough stuff with that and for her children, it was hard for them too. And, you know, thankfully now eight years into that relationship and the creases have smoothed out, you know, and the kids are all good. And, and, you know, yeah. the kids actually now get to get to experience and observe a functional relationship that's full of love. We don't fight. We treat each other beautifully. We're, we're very conscious. We're best friends. We run businesses together. We run retreats around the world together. You know, we parent very similarly. And so our children get to see a functional relationship, whereas before they were watching their parents fighting and um, no, not being so nice to each other. Yeah, it's interesting because when I listen to young people who, you know, they're in their 20s or so or, you know, under 30 and they were 30 and they want and they want to get married and they want to have kids and they want to do all of this stuff. And I can't help but feel like there should be some caution about doing all of that too young because you know, in the case of my first marriage, it was only youth and neither of us knowing really what was the best fit for us. No, neither of us changed dramatically as human beings. It was just those 10 years required a, were a lot of development. Those were yeah. our early 20s, our mid 20s, our early 30s. And so I wonder what your thoughts are you know, on human development. What what does it take to be a good partner? Do you think? Wow, that's a that's you know, it's a, a big beautiful question. I, I think the overarching answer to that is that the more conscious we become, i.e. the more aware we become, our ability to to be a better partner, but our ability to be a better person, a better friend, a better whatever it is that we do, our ability to be a better partner expands with our expanding yeah. consciousness. So 
you know, and that means just being more aware, more aware of ourselves, more aware of when our ego is, is getting in the way or driving the bus, more aware of, you know, when we are reacting defensively to any stimulus from around us, whether it's our partner saying something or whether it's something we see on the news or something somebody says on Twitter, when, you know, we react, we react very defensively and, and that's our sense of identity. And for me anyway, this, this journey of, of conscious awareness, this journey of being able to observe, mindfully observe my ego, my identity, stomping its feet, so to speak, has been wonderful because you don't always have to um, succumb to that. You know, you can notice it and let it, let it just dissipate without reacting. So our, our ability to be able to pause yeah. and take a breath and choose how to respond rather than just defensively reacting to life all the time, you know, and I think that can make you a much better partner. Yeah, which, which dovetails with the title of your book, The Art of Conscious Communication for Thoughtful Men, the conscious communication of it. Why did you write the book? I wrote the, I mean, I, I, I started writing a book on communication because I'm passionate about it. And I was looking at the state of play globally, you know, at people shouting at each other across these digital divides of difference, I call it, online. And yeah. also more, more immediately for me with my clients, I'm a leadership coach. And so often when a leader comes to me with a, a challenging situation at work, or, a, you know, a situation that they need to try and resolve or improve or lead their team in, in a certain direction. So often it's just falling over in miscommunication. You know, you've got these two people and they're just missing each other. They work for the same organization. They want the same higher purpose. They're, they're aiming for the same outcome. They're on the same team, but they feel like they're not because they're missing each other in the communication. It's the same in relationships. You know, I look back to my, my first marriage and we loved each other. No question, we fell in love with each other, but we were just missing each other in the communication and it just, the, the divide got more and more to the point where it was, you know, irreconcilable. So communication, I feel, is really important. And I started writing a book on communication in, in lockdown, in COVID. And I had a book writing mentor and she was reading the manuscripts and she said, oh, I'm loving this, this book, it's wonderful, it's great, but you need to pick an audience. It's too broad, you're writing too broadly, so pick, an audience that you want to write for and she said I think men really could do with this book and I'm passionate about mm -hmm. I'm passionate about that as well I've been sitting in a men's circle down the coast here for 12 years now a group of us men sit around a fire and we we talk to a theme of you know our experience and what it's like to in inverted commas be a man and the challenges that 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 presents you know and and also the whole idea not idea but the whole situation that boys are indoctrinated into this patriarchal society and we're told this is how you should be a man you know and we're told to divorce ourselves from our emotional selves don't cry suck it up toughen up harden up be a man we get taught this as boys and so there's a lot of men of my generation our generation in in the states also here in australia who don't know how to connect with their emotional selves and how to express themselves and how to communicate yeah more intimately they've they've just been taught not to do that so i think there's a there's a big opportunity for for us as men to be able to improve those abilities also if you're presumably working as a leadership coach with female executives female leaders it it 
behooves you to have a really good understanding of the the masculine you know perspective and challenges and the and the feminine challenges and the challenges to equality and equity in the workplace appreciation of someone and contribution in spite of their gender or their or their orientation the workplace can be a very tough culture you know for any number of reasons what do we have to do to repair or improve our workplace cultures yeah well you you mentioned something there that i think is is worth us focusing on in these corporate workplaces in this business culture which is the understanding appreciation and then the utilization of both masculine and feminine energies which we all have access to both you know so i'm right. like you said this is not a gender thing and it's not a male female thing people humans <clears throat> have access to to masculine energy which is result focused linear get you know get re achieve the goal take action get on with it right bottom line make it happen is the, is our masculine energy and the feminine energy is more human centric like we're in this together we're people we're humans emotional intelligence how do we communicate how do we interact expanded awareness aware of more than one thing at once lateral thinking is is a feminine energy quality not literal thinking so we have access to both of these energies and i and i believe that we should be changing consciously being talking about this and i do this with my clients we should be changing the workplace to be more human centric you know the the post industrial revolution time of make more widgets on the production line and make as many as possible and make as much money as possible is becoming less relevant you know in modern times and and post pandemic times it's really now about you know what value are we bringing to humanity and and how are we doing that working together as humans as people so we need to shift you know and there's no there's no point in yes i'm all up for equality and i'm all up for you know i'm 100% up for that but there's no point in putting females into leadership roles if they have to just succeed using their masculine energy and become like a a male energy in a female body what's the point of that we need to change the environment <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah yeah very well said because the the idea of a woman competing in a man's world the problem with that is that it's a man's world so yes they can adapt they can out tough the male they can outperform the male but that doesn't fix the the dynamic do you think that in a in what appears to be an increasingly purpose-driven or cause marketing, you know, environment, are we really shifting? Like are businesses really shifting or are they paying lip service to the idea of DEI, let's say, to cause marketing because they know they have to have some kind of, they have to be doing something good in order to be accepted in today's world. Like. From your point of view, from what you can see, how much shifting is going on? There's definitely a shift, you know, well, a shift. There's definitely shifting happening. And there's, you know, the, the more I kind of connect with, with people like you around the world, the more I see that there are actually good people on a similar mission doing what they can do. Now, is, has the, yeah. is the balance of that um, 
<clears throat> to a majority of you know of, of corporate world or business world changing no not yet i don't think so this change is sometimes frustratingly slow but at the same time you know that is what it is and so people like me who are working face to face with leaders helping them change the way they lead you know we're at the pointy end of change and so there's a lot of kickback to it you know, I, I, I'm selective with my clients. If I see a, if I, if I get offered work with a big corporate and I can see that they're not going to change and the work I'm going to do with them is just them ticking a box and saying, yeah, yeah, we got this coach in and he did some stuff around equality and we ticked that box. I say no to that work. I'm not interested in wasting my time if it's not going to yeah. have any positive impact. So I'm pretty selective with my clients. That's really the guidance aspect of, of, it, it applies to, to almost any area, the notion that until someone wants to change, yeah. they won't. 100%. Whether it's, you know, in talking to people about addiction or talking to people about their relationships or their job or their health, until they make that decision to listen and to be open to change, there's no, there's nothing that, that can be accomplished. So they're their sincerity is so important. And on the other side of that, without a really good leadership coach in this case, or a really good doctor or a really good, you know, spiritual advisor, whatever it may be, without that guidance, you know, guiding hand, there isn't the wherewithal for them to change either, because you need the perspective, you need the, you need someone to partner with you in your in your change. But I wonder sometimes if the bigger powers at work there, it feels like in our, and whether it's in the United States or globally, you know, I, I relate mostly to what goes on in my country because that's where I've been for, for the last two years for, with yeah. very few exceptions. But, yeah. um, you know, which was not the case three, three years ago. So I can't comment as much on what's going on internationally, but it seems like there are very small pockets of power where those interests are the ones being served. And so, you know, talking about corporate stuff, stuff like that. What do you think people, what do you think we can do in our lives that can actually influence the trends in the world that can push the the world at large toward a more humanity deeper sense of purpose less greed and less and less selfishness yeah well look i think what we shouldn't do is succumb to apathy and cynicism and there's no point because the powers that be are too powerful that's what we shouldn't do and then what what mm -hmm. what can we do well that that depends for each different person but first and foremost live the life that you aspire to in terms of the way you show up treat your your treat the people around you the way you feel that humans should treat each other be kind you know be conscious as much as you can be loving any of your core values the ways that you believe that humans should ideally show up be that show up like that each day that's the first step yeah you know and then how much you want to play a part in trying to influence the evolution of us as a species 
you know, the, the expanding consciousness, how much you want to play a part of that, that's up to you. You know, there, you might have John who lives in, um, you know, who lives in a small town and, and John doesn't want to try and save the world. John just wants to, you know, run his mechanic shop in the small town. He just wants to be a nice guy. You know, he wants to be the best husband he can be and the best mechanic he can be. And maybe he goes to church on a Sunday and he just wants to be the best, you know, community member he can be. That's great. Go just do that if that's what you want to do. But then you might have Mary and Mary wants to get out there and start a podcast and she wants to change the world. Go, Mary, go. <laughs> you know. So what can we do? <laughs> do? Do whatever it is that you feel to do. But the, the first point I think is important. I think it's important not to just give up and say, well, the powers are too powerful. I'm just going to kick back and do nothing because there's no point. Right? That's when we start to lose. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think just be engaged. Show up as the person that you choose to be. It's interesting, man. I don't know whether you've now, what's his name? Johan Hari is the author and his latest book is Stolen Focus. There's a plug for you, Johan. It's a great okay. book. Anyway, in this book, he talks about change. You know, what can we do to affect change? And he speaks to this point. And he, he mentioned, for example, the, there was before we understood that lead was poison. We had lead in our petrol. We had lead in our paint. We had lead in our pencils. We had lead everywhere. But we didn't know it was poisonous. And then when we understood it was poisonous, but the big industries, they weren't going to change. They were just selling as much you know, paint as possible that had lead in it. They weren't going to change. And petrol, they weren't going to take lead out of their petrol. One woman, there was one woman in England, in the United Kingdom, who took this on as her cause. And she rallied and rallied and rallied. And she dedicated her life to saving our children from lead poisoning. And she spearheaded the change. And now we don't have lead in our petrol and we don't have lead in our paint and our pencils because of this one woman. So I, I think it's important to remember that you can affect change. You can be a part of change. So feel empowered and do whatever you feel to do to remind humanity that we are essentially good. I believe we are. You know, I, I believe that most humans wake up in the morning and think, you know, I want to be a good person today. You know, but it's those ones that are super, super loud and so aggressive. You know, <laughs> yeah, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, I think, I think so too. I think it's, it's interesting. I think one of the, one of the telltale signs that we are naturally inclined toward goodness is that when we're not good, we try to convince ourselves that we are. If we didn't, <laughs> if we didn't care about being, if we, if we didn't care about being good, yeah, we would yeah. just say, screw it. I'm, I'm a jerk. I'm an asshole. I don't, I am not interested in being good. But instead, we're like, I'm a good person. I do this. I do that. I I, I'm, I'm doing it for the, and we're lying to ourselves in many cases, but we're, yeah. but we're inclined to, to feel like we're good. Yeah. And, um, and so we justify to ourselves and there's something hopeful in that in that notion because the idea is that is that well it takes a lot of effort to convince yourself that you're good when you're really yeah. doing bad things you might as well just try doing good things and have less work on the back end you know <laughs> of trying to convince yourself that you're good i um, love that yeah that's but great. one of the things that thank you well well one of the things that uh that's required 
if you're going to pursue your mission is resilience because there's going to be there's going to be uh, pushback mm. you know personally speaking how do you maintain your resilience to the challenges that you face one of the key aspects to to my resilience and it's the reason that i was attracted to your podcast was um when i when i saw that you know we need to remember to be able to laugh at at life right because our suffering exists when we take everything so seriously we take ourselves so seriously so one of the things that's really helped me with my resilience is the the discipline of a positive perspective and also the discipline and when i say discipline because sometimes when you're feeling flat and you're feeling overwhelmed and you're feeling like it's all too hard it's not natural to it's not it's not easy to remember true perspective it takes discipline it's like oh hang on a second i need to actually get my perspective back again here for a sec so i'm going to go outside on a clear night and i'm going to look up at the stars and i'm going to remember reality like the actual reality of where i am and when i am in time and the fact that it's a ridiculous miracle that that the earth even exists at all let alone me and that we're on the edge of the milky way galaxy which is 120,000 light years across and the milky way galaxy is one of billions of galaxies right and in in the scope of time since the big bang humans have only been around for a second and will be gone at some point in time and my life actually doesn't matter right to remember that you know and and really yeah. just to lighten up and say, wow, we, I forgot that. I forgot that. And I got so caught up in my life being so important and woe is me kind of thing. And then you remember, wow, that's, I just forgot re reality. And, and you chuckle that's and you beautiful. go, all right, you know, so now I'm going to go back into, into my life and I'm going to do my best. I'm going to show up. I'm going to love my kids the best way I can. I'm going to make mistakes and chuckle at myself because my intentions were good, but I stuffed it up. That's okay. Um, I'm going to meet people in the street and I'm going to smile at them because why not? Because that feels nice. It's better than scowling at them, you know. So, yeah, perspective in answer to your question, dudes. But perspective has been a big part of resilience for me. Yeah, perspective. That That's beautiful. That was a beautiful, you know, strategy. It really is nice. I mean, I what I do is, is similar but different. What I do in such a circumstance is I go outside in broad daylight and I just look up at the sky and a bird shits on my head, and I realize, <laughs> hey, you know what? That's that's the perspective that I needed. That's exactly right. That's right. I can look <laughs> all the way up there into infinity, and from somewhere in there, a bird's going to take a poop on my head, and that's going <laughs> to remind me that I don't really matter, that, yeah. that I'm not special. But yeah. of course, of course, you're leaving it to chance that a bird is going to... You have to choose an area that's highly populated with, <laughs> with, with birds with wildlife in the in the air and you know go and stand under you know, a nest you can, under you can a tree find out the same yeah stand under a nest well a lot of us will prod that that hornet's nest uh -huh. you know that's another thing that human beings do right is antagonize nature or antagonize and by nature i mean human nature animal nature as a whole we yeah. We do what children do, which is to push boundaries and test boundaries. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't think we should be too hard on ourselves for making mistakes like you alluded to making mistakes. What have you learned from from the process of making mistakes? 
Wow, I mean that's 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 the whole way we you know improve is through making mistakes. If we never made a mistake, we'd never evolve, grow, or improve. You know, and it's, it seems to me that we we learn the most through the most painful mistakes. You know, you make a little mistake and you yeah. kind of go, oh yeah, well that didn't hurt too much. But when you make a mistake that hurts, <laughs> that gets your attention. You're like, oh wow, oh no, I don't want to do that again. You know. Um, and then we bang our head on the same low hanging doorway many times before we learn to duck, you know. But yeah, no, mistakes are, are imperative to to what we do. And, you know, I don't even really see them as mistakes anymore. You know, I, what's most important for me is intention. You know, if your intention is good, <clears throat> then that should be that should be important. It should be important what someone's intention is. If their intention is good and for the greater good, then, you know, and then if they make a mistake, in inverted commas, i.e. they try something that didn't work so well, that's okay. That's just a part of the process of, you know, improving functionality. Yeah, and, and I think we might serve ourselves better by differentiating between mistakes and choices that we, that we make. You know, a mistake can be a, you know, a well-intended flaw in our estimate of what we thought an outcome would be. Mm. So that's exactly what you're saying. My intent mm. was not to, was not to do any of this stuff. My, my intent was to achieve this, this result. And I, and I was mistaken that I, I tried this tact and it didn't work, yeah. you know, but I think sometimes we, we make choices that on some level, the same way I think with criticism, that when someone gives us really constructive criticism on some level, we knew that already, we just hadn't heard it or seen it, mm. you know? Um, yeah. But, but we know it, so they're pointing it out to us. Do you feel sometimes with your leadership coaching that you're, you're pointing out things to, to your clients that should have been maybe obvious to them, but they just didn't have the perspective to see it? Yeah, I don't think I don't think if I'm helping a leader understand something about the way they're leading that they didn't understand before, I don't think it should have been obvious to them um, because it wasn't. So therefore, it shouldn't have been. But, yeah. you know, and, and so uh, that's okay. I look at what I believe is functional and, and what I aspire to help my clients do is to create cultures, team cultures, organizational cultures, where feedback is welcome where mistakes are necessary where we're leaning into this together supporting each other to to try and keep getting better at what we're doing you know and to try and deliver the most value in the best way possible through our service or product or whatever it is that we're doing you know and and that means that we should support each other to make mistakes you know someone says to fail often quickly get on with it you know try stuff and let's support each other to feel psychologically safe enough to have a crazy idea that doesn't work. You know, every, every genius idea until it worked was crazy, you know, and people would mm -hmm. come up with an idea and everyone's going, no, yeah. that's crazy. That's never going to work. And then when it worked, it was like, wow, you're a genius. <laughs> you know? So we should be having lots yeah. of crazy ideas, you know, and to create an environment where that's okay to create an environment where the people there feel that if their intentions are good and they're they're really trying to serve the greater good of the organization 
that when they have crazy ideas or make mistakes or say silly things or whatever, if their intentions are good, that they're safe. Their leader has got their back. You know, that's, I think that's important. Can anyone learn to be a good leader? Yeah, look, I, yes. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's easier for some people than others. Some people just really, you know, their natural behavioral style, they just don't want to be a leader. They'd rather just be a team member and feel significant in what they do in their part of the team. There's some people, you know, and so they don't have an inclination. They, they say, oh, I don't really want to be out the front le leading this group of people to wherever we're going. Theoretically, hypothetically, can anyone be a good leader? Yeah, I think so. And, and at, at points in our lives, we all have to step up and lead. You know, as soon as you become a parent, you're a leader as well. You know, so we all have opportunity whether we like it or not, where we need to step up and lead and, and even self-leadership. So leading yourself from where you are to where you want to get to. But, you know, in that, in the more stereotypical kind of, you know, corporate or business world leader, you know, it's, it's much harder for some people to lead than others. Yeah. And then I want to, I didn't want to close our conversation without, without getting at least one good fire dance story so uh, when my my wife and I, we, we were recently married and we were living in Taiwan teaching English, kindergarten teachers, and I knew how to, to play with fire, you know, and you have fire on the end of a staff and, you know, you light the ends of the staff or fire on poi, it's a New Zealand um, thing called a poi where you have a fire ball on the end of a piece of string and you spin it all around in, in, and it looks beautiful, right? And I knew how to do this from my years of, of traveling. And we were standing outside a pub and I was just twirling fire out on the street just for entertainment's sake. And this Taiwanese guy came up to me and he said, hey, I'm an artist agent here in Taiwan and I can get you work. I can get you paid work, twirling fire out the front of the department stores on stage to music, etc." I said, great, let's do that. And he saw my wife, you know, this, this beautiful young woman standing next to him. And he said, can she twirl fire? And I said, no, she doesn't know. She doesn't know how to. And he said, well, if you can teach her how to twirl it and get her to wear not so many clothes, I can double your money <laughs> or more or triple. I can get you triple, you know? And I looked at my wife and said, do you want to learn how to twirl fire? And she said, yeah, that's fine. So I taught her how to kind of just spin it around a little bit, but that's what they wanted. They wanted this Western, this hot, beautiful Western woman wearing a bikini twirling fire. And we got, you know, way more money than if I had done it on my own. So, so we did that for a year and, and earned pretty good money doing that. That's perfect. See that where in Taiwan did you, did you live? We lived in a small town outside of Taichung, which is the second biggest city. And it was called Fongyuan. And we lived in a village there and I was a kindergarten oh. teacher for a year. So I had, I had 20 little, beautiful, gorgeous little four and five-year-olds who didn't really speak much English. And the school we taught in was called Buckley American School. And because the, the Taiwanese culture, I, maybe still now, this was quite some time ago, was aspiring to be American, you know? They wanted everything American culture. They had the American department stores and the American fashion and all this kind of stuff. And so in the school that we were in, we had to teach our kids how to speak English with American accents, right? We had to teach American phonetics. Oh, so, yeah. so I, you know, if I was teaching the word hot, like it's a hot day in summer, we say hot, you guys say hot, 
And so I'd have to teach the kids to say heart. It's a heart day. <laughs> and so when I'd come into class in the morning, yeah. all the kids would sit, are sitting in front of me. And I'd say, good morning, kids. And they'd say, good morning, teacher. And I'd go, how do we say it in Australia? And they'd all go, g'day, mate. <laughs> so I had, them learning, <laughs> I had them learning Australian accents as well. That's great. I've been to Taiwan many times uh, for oh, wow. work. And I've been to Taipei quite a bit. I've been, been to the other end of, of Taiwan. This was as recently as, you know, three years ago, I think. Uh -huh. And so the in Taipei, at least, the the westernization, so to speak, of the of the malls and stuff, the stores is still riding pretty steady there. Uh -huh. You know, you can go into an H&M or where, whatever, whatever right. it might be. Um, but a beautiful country, just a beautiful Oh, country. amazing, amazing. And, and I, I don't know if you've been to the Royal Palace Museum where they've got all of the, the artifacts from the... The Ming dynasties, yeah, it's, that that museum yes, still yeah. to this day I think is the most amazing museum I've ever been to. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five star review and share this podcast with your friends.